Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Taking a little break this morning from our study in Revelation. I know there is a, a debate that frequently happens this time of year, and last year I think it ramped up to um, a pretty fevered pitch with Sunday, Christmas falling on Sunday last year. Um, but even in reform circles, it's the debate has raged as to the roots and the celebration of Christmas. Should we, should we not? I, I really don't intend to weigh in on that debate this morning so much as to say, um, what does scripture say? And I do believe there is a biblical cause to celebrate, to celebrate the advent of the Savior I was thinking about it this week, and in Colossians chapter 2, 16, it says, "Let Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul talking about Debates there had between um, believers that were of Jewish lineage and heritage and those who were Gentiles. And what should the church celebrate? Should they celebrate the feast, not celebrate the feast? What, what should they do? And Paul rightfully turns their attention to the fact that all of these things point to the substance, which is Christ. Don't miss the forest for the trees, church, as we argue and debate on Twitter as to whether or not we should celebrate Christmas. He goes on to say, if you then, listen to this, and this is what I would encourage you this morning. In verse 23, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. My prayer is for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning on this Christmas Eve that we set our minds on things above, more on the substance and less on the shadow. We can get awfully carried away with shadows. Let's set our minds on the substance. So for themes and context this morning, let's look at Luke chapter 2. I want to I read um, the first 21 verses, not intending to preach on the entire chapter this morning, but I want to give you the context. And, and this is good for us to hear. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. 
and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Came across the, a really good quote on worship this week by Bruce Leafblad. He says, worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds' attention and hearts' affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. John Piper, talking about worship, says this, the mind corresponds to the understanding of the truth of God's perfections. Love corresponds to the delight in the worth and beauty of those perfections. God is glorified both in being understood and being delighted in. So we think about the advent of our Savior. Um, one of the things that jumps out at you as you read the, the first 20 verses of Luke is the worship from the angels to the shepherds, the glorifying of God um, as he reveals himself in the, the, the baby. There's some things that jump out at me about this text too. There, there is, as you read this and you think about the context, there's a lot of chaos going on, isn't there? Political tumult or upheaval. There is a wicked tyrant who is issuing decrees. But in the middle of the wicked tyrant issuing decrees, God has decreed that he would send his son and it strikes me as ironic. You hear people talk about all the time when we talk about having kids. I would never bring a child into this world. Why? Because it's it's just so evil. It's so dark. And I can't justify bringing this, these children into the world because it's so messed up. And in the middle of all of this darkness and messed up -edness, God sends his son, and ironically, interestingly to me, in the form of a baby. 
he he's not full grown. He's not able to defend and protect himself. He is a baby. And and it just screams at us that God is sovereign and he is in control. Very much reminded of Moses when when there's a decree sent out by Pharaoh to murder all the, the, the males of, of Israel. And what a wicked decree that was. And here God, in spite of all of that, is sovereign and he protected Moses. We, we see that he protects the Lord Jesus here. This baby is born to parents who are struggling financially. Notice that they are on their way to be registered, which is another way of saying to be taxed. Some things never change, right? <clears throat> I looked at my mail this morning and there were taxes, two different envelopes <clears throat> for two of our cars. Some things will just never change. But thinking about the condition of Mary and Joseph, Joseph is a hardworking carpenter. And here we find in this particular scenario that he is on his way to pay his taxes. And, and they're not rolling in what I would call the comforts of the middle class. There is no phoning ahead or using um, his iPhone to claim accumulated points at the Marriott, is there? They're about 100 miles, if you do the math, they're about 100 miles between Galilee and Bethlehem. How did they get there? Basically walked. Think about, think about the, the circumstances of that occasion. Joseph maybe had um, something that Mary could ride on from an animal perspective, but the, the reality of it is, is most of the travel for 100 miles, it's like walking from here to Durham, North Carolina. Think about that. To pay my taxes. How would I have felt about that? I have to walk a hundred miles to pay my taxes. Okay, I digress. But but here she is on the verge of giving birth. There's there was no perfect time for that, was there? In fact, if you think about the circumstances, you could say it was bad timing. But in this biblical account, God is perfectly orchestrating the events of history under his infinitely wise providential sovereignty. In the fullness of time, the scripture says, and it had been, as we look at Simeon in his prayer, it had been almost 400 years since the closing of the Old Testament and this point in time. 400 years. That's longer than the United States has been in existence. From Malachi to Matthew, a great period of quiet. This morning, I have three points that I want to um, bring before you for your consideration and encouragement as we look at the, the prayer of Simeon. And if you see this picture on the screen, for those of you that can see it, this is one of my favorite paintings. And it's one of my favorite paintings because it was a, a favorite of my dad's. It was gifted to him. And um, the picture is called Simeon's Moment. And, and you get the picture here, obviously, as you think about Simeon holding the newborn baby in his arms. And, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. 
but holy to the Lord, verses 22 through 24. We see Simeon waiting on the Lord in verses 25 and 26. And then he praises and worships the Lord for his salvation from verses 27 to 32. Those are the three things I want to look at this morning. So first of all, verse 22, holy to the Lord. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why does the scripture highlight this for us? Kind of odd that this is included here. But I want you to see that the reason that this is highlighted for us and what it's talking about in verses 22 through 24 and the time for their purification is because sin is the central reason for which Jesus came. In Matthew 9, 9, 9 through 13, we find Jesus intermingling with the sinners. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting on the tax booth or at the tax booth. I don't know why taxes keeps coming up, but sure enough. And he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The whole point of Jesus coming is to deal with the issue in the matter of sin. And Joseph and Mary observe the time for ceremonial cleansing and obedience to God's word. What are they referring to? Well, if you look back to Leviticus chapter 12, and I don't know if you remember this. Some of you might not have been here in 2017. We were doing a study through the book of Leviticus, and we got to Leviticus 12. Turn there if you have your Bibles. And this was one of those chapters when I started studying, and I thought, man, I wish Mark would have gotten this chapter. But I got it instead. And what we found as we studied the book of Leviticus was amazing. The book of Leviticus is an incredible blessing. If you really study it, and, and normally when you start out doing your Bible reading for the year and you get to Leviticus, that's where people get bogged down in the swamp. They're like, Leviticus is tough reading. But when you study Leviticus, Instead of just glossing over it, you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is on every line, every page. And this is no different. And I find it interesting that as we talk about the context of the birth of the Lord Jesus, Leviticus 12 is brought up. So let's turn there. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, 
nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for son or for daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for the burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So why was this time of purification and separation required under the law of Moses? Well, remember... The book of, of Leviticus is a picture of types and shadows. It was to teach Israel the difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane. What was significant about the birth of the child? Is God here saying that having children is bad? No, no. But what transpired in the birth of a child? It was a, a great loss of blood. In Leviticus 17, verse 10, it says, If any of the, one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. Listen, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The picture of the loss of blood is the picture of the loss of life. You talk about coming into the presence of God. The woman had to stay apart from the temple or the, um, the dwelling place of God for a period of time until she was ceremonial, ceremonially clean. Why? Because there could not be death in the presence of God. This was a picture to remind Israel about the holiness of God and, and the sin of that they themselves had to have dealt with. So it was a it was a picture of type and shadow for them. In Deuteronomy 22, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 12, verse 23, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Matthew Henry says this, but this ceremonial uncleanness which the law laid women in the childbed was to signify the pollution of sin, which we are all conceived and born in. Or if the root be impure, so is the branch. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Psalm 51, 5. If sin had not entered, nothing but purity and honor had attended all the productions of that great blessing, be fruitful and multiply. But now the nature of man is degenerated. The propagation of that nature is laid under these marks of disgrace because of the sin and corruption that are propagated with it. And in remembrance of the curse upon the woman that was first in, in transgression. And the exclusion of the woman for so many days from the sanctuary and all participation of the holy things signified that our, our original corruption, that sinning sin which brought into the world with us would have excluded us forever 
from the enjoyment of God and his favors if he had not graciously provided for our purifying. So why the 40 days for males and the 80 days for for females? Well, pulpit commentary says this, and it's a great point. If she bear a male child or a maid child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score and six days. The reason why the duration of the mother's uncleanness is twice as long at a girl's birth as, as at a boy's would appear to be that the uncleanness attached to the child as well as to the mother, but as the boy was placed in a state of, notice this, ceremonial purity. The blood, by the way, the blood of sacrifices did not remit sin. Did not. These were pictures, types and shadows. But it continues. Um, but the boy was placed in a state of ceremonial purity at once by the act of circumcision, which took place on the eighth day. He thereupon ceased to be unclean, and the mother's uncleanness alone remained. Whereas the case of a girl, both mother and child were unclean during the period that, that the former was in the blood of her purifying. Therefore, that period had to be doubly long. So Luke 2.20, where the right reading is, quote, when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished for eight days, the infant Savior submitted to legal uncleanness and fulfilling all righteousness. Now, the question that comes up is, did, did Jesus need to be purified? No. He absolutely did not. Um, there are those who would teach and proclaimed that Mary was sinless. Guess what? She was not. And she knew that, by the way. But I want you to notice this, that Jesus was concerned with the fulfilling of all righteousness. Fifteen times in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the word fulfill or fulfilled used in regard to Jesus, perfectly fulfilling the, the role of the promised Messiah. If you look in Matthew chapter 3, did Jesus need to be baptized, by the way? So why was Jesus baptized? Look at what Jesus says about why he was baptized. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So why was it necessary for Jesus to fulfill the law. Jesse taught us last week in depth on this. If we are to have a perfect mediator, we had to have one who perfectly did what we could not do. Richard, you were talking this morning about falling short. This, despite, and, and you know what? January 1st reminds us of a lot of falling short, doesn't it? How many times have we made resolutions that we will do this or we will not do this and forever my life will be changed. And by January 7th, 
We've forgotten all about it, haven't we? Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. Look at Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time, this is verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Listen, born under the law. This is not to say that Jesus was in sin. It's not what it's saying, but he is under the obligation of the law to obey it perfectly. He's born under the law because, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But yet, what? Without sin. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. I read somebody's statement the other day about, well, I'm really not concerned with, with whether or not Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Really? Should we not be concerned Amen. as to whether or not Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament? Because if he didn't, then he's not who he said he was. He's not the Messiah. Jesus perfectly fulfills the law on behalf of those who could not. I want you to notice from our text, Jesus is brought to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord again. A picture of Old Testament type and shadow being fulfilled in him. If you look in Exodus 13, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Why did God tell Israel to consecrate the firstborn? And I want, I, I, I want to be careful here that we don't get lost in the picture of the type and shadows. I'm, I've got a point to this. The Lord says to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and a beast is mine. John Calvin in commenting on this is this is meant for the fulfilling of the law for otherwise the virgin was not defiled nor unclean by the birth of this child. Notice that he is separated as holy to the Lord. He is the fulfillment of this type and shadow that we see in Exodus 13. I mentioned as we started this morning that Mary and Joseph were, were poor or of meager means. How do we know that? Well, there's a, there's a picture here, and this is a, a, an, an amazing picture. We, If you're reading through Leviticus, you see this and you could gloss over it and miss an, an immensely important truth. What is that? Leviticus 12.8. And this is talking about the purification of the, of the mother that just has a baby. 12.8 Leviticus. If she cannot afford a lamb, what is she supposed to do? Take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Notice that Mary and Joseph are not going to Jerusalem to offer a lamb. Why is that? They don't have the money. It costs a lot of money. There is no financial barrier to Christ. 
That's exactly what this passage is screaming to us. And the other picture of this, if you look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In verses 22 through 24, we see this picture that might seem out of place as it talks about the birth and, and the onset of the Lord Jesus' life. But sin is the central picture here. And, and the picture that we need to see with the, the pair of turtle doves and the young pigeons is God provides the lamb. God provides the lamb because the price is far beyond our ability to pay. The picture of the Lord Jesus' advent is the fact that God is providing a lamb. Do you remember when Abraham takes his son to the top of the mountain and he's about to plunge the knife into the chest of Isaac and the, and the angel of the Lord stops him? I know that you will obey me now. And what happens? There in the thicket, the scripture says, there was a ram tangled up with his horns waiting to be taken by Abraham and offered. And, and the picture is very clear. God gave us his son as the provision of that lamb. You and I can't afford it. There's nothing we can do to pay for that lamb. And it's seen here in the, the poverty of Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 25. We have the introduction of Simeon who the scripture defines as waiting on the Lord. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Well, there would be some that tell you the Holy Spirit was not active in the Old Testament. And yet here we see it, don't we? So who was Simeon? So Matthew Poole says this, and, and I think a, a solid take on the biblical picture of Simeon. Interpreters have spent many pains in fortifying their conjectures, for they can be no more than conjecture, that this Simeon was Rabbi Simeon, the son of Hillel, the father of Gamaliel. Now, we know Gamaliel as who? He was Paul's teacher. We read in Acts. But to what purpose, I cannot tell. It can hardly be thought that a man of that note should do such a thing as this so openly, and no more notice be taken of him. That which Calvin and Brantius and other Reformed divines do think is much more probable that he has some, that he, being, being Simeon, was some ordinary, plain man of an obscure quality as to his circumstances in this world. There was a general expectation of the Messiah at this time, but very few had a right notion of him, but lived in a vain expectation of, I know not what secular prince who should bring them a temporal deliverance. These few, those who rightly understood the Messiah, that is, were scarce, any of them um, of their rabbis or rabbins, but a poor despised sort of people whom those great doctors counted accursed. The revelations of Christ were to none of the Pharisees, but to Joseph, a carpenter, to Mary, a despised virgin, though of the house of David, to an ordinary priest, Zacharias, 
to shepherds and why why we should fancy this Simeon as a principal doctor, I cannot tell. The evangelist gives him his highest title, a just man and devout, one that waited. The scripture doesn't tell us beyond this who Simeon was. There's as as Matthew Poole talks about, there's a lot of conjecture that says he was a great teacher in the in the uh, hierarchy of Jewish tradition, but the scripture doesn't tell us that. What it does tell us about Simeon, I think, is important, and we should take note of it. The scripture testifies to the character of Simeon, this ordinary man. The scripture says he was righteous, that is, he was equitable to others, that is, he treated other people justly. He was innocent, he was holy, he was devout, that is, he was circumspect. He was a man of waiting. That is, and we we look at the picture of um, endurance here. He was a man of endurance. Now think about it. How long had it been since there was word from a prophet? 400 years. And here we have the picture of a man who is doing his thing, serving the Lord, waiting. And what is he waiting on specifically? Scripture says he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. That is who? Messiah. Simeon knows who and what he is waiting on. And it has been 400 years Scripture says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit tell him? Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the promised one. There, there are three things that jump out at me about Simeon. And, and just bear with me for a minute. I, I see that he is living actively. Well, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that he's running marathons and doing triathlons and all of that. What I mean is he's actively waiting on the Lord. Scripture, the giving of Scripture had been shut off for 400 years, but here we find Simeon not being impacted by that. You see, when you look at the promises of God through the eyes of faith, time doesn't matter, does it? Scripture says the Lord is coming back. The scoffers will say, there hasn't been word from the Lord in centuries. What are you Christians doing? But the eyes of faith see the fact that God will keep his promise. And here we have the example of a man who's actively waiting on the Lord. He's busy serving the Lord and others. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He was living, secondly, expectantly. He had a singular driving purpose to see the Savior. That's all he wanted. 
the scripture doesn't tell us anything else about the 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 goals, the ambitions of Simeon. Life goals doesn't say anything about that. There was one thing that Simeon wanted, and that was to lay eyes on the Lord Jesus. I think there's something there for us. I was listening yesterday to a debate between Alex O'Connor, who's an atheist, and Ben Shapiro, who is is a practicing Jew. Ben Shapiro arguing for the existence of God and Alex O'Connor obviously um, arguing for the lack of a God. And and I was struck by his his statement on the purpose of life, that life is an illusion. And that we are moved by just evolutionary wiring. I thought, man, what a hopeless, purposeless existence. How can you get out of bed every day if you think that? Simeon hadn't heard a word for 400 years, and he was getting out of bed every day with a purpose. What was his purpose? He wanted to know the Messiah. His goal, his purpose was to see Jesus in this, this life and the next. And he lived by faith with an expectation invested in the character of God. What kept him going? Well, the scripture says the spirit of God indwelled him. We find in a few verses that he recognizes the Lord Jesus in infant form. How did he recognize him? The spirit of God indwelling him. But what had he been doing as he's waiting for the Lord? Thank you. Yes. How will we recognize the Lord Jesus? Remember, we've been studying through the book of Revelation, and we've talked about the fact that there will be many false prophets how do we not get carried about by every wind of doctrine following prophets, false prophets here, false prophets there? Study the word. Knowing God matters. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. By the way, our worship is shaped by our theology, our understanding of who God is. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he is pleased when we worship him for who he is, as he has declared in his word. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What was Paul's purpose? What screams at you as you read that? Well, Paul's really working on his retirement plan, isn't he? Paul's working on crafting his forever home. No. One of the things that strikes me about Simeon and his 
agreement with Paul is that his singular purpose as a child of God is knowing Christ. You realize the reason that God brings difficult circumstances in our lives is so he can reveal himself to us in those difficult circumstances. Paul points it out right here. He said, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrections. And how do I do that? Paul says, because I share his sufferings. Simeon was living expectantly. And his expectation was that he would know his savior. He had no other driving desire in his life. I want you to also see, lastly, he's living obediently. The scripture says he, he and, and it, it implies this to us because in his prayer that we'll see in the next few verses, he says, according to your word, how did Simeon know the word? Well, because he had been studying it. He was studying the word and the promises of God while led by the Holy Spirit. He recognizes Jesus because he was a student of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit had lifted the blindness off of his eyes that so many others had who missed him. Remember the account of Nicodemus, who was a, a ruler of the Jews. He was, an, he was an established, educated teacher of Israel, and he did not see Jesus for who he was, did he? He comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want to be seen speaking to him in the daylight, lest people think poorly of him. And he goes to find out what Jesus is all about. And Jesus cuts right to the, the chase and says, you must be born again. You cannot see or you cannot enter the kingdom of God until you can see. And the only way you can be seen or you can see is to be born from above. And even in that, Nicodemus was lost. He's like, how do I enter a second time into my mother's womb? It's impossible. There was a man who should have recognized Jesus, but the blindness on Nicodemus at that time was great. He was educated. He was a learned scholar, and he missed Jesus. But here is a man in Simeon that saw him. The Lord had taken the veil off of his eyes as he studied the scripture, and he knew who he was expecting to see. I want you to see, lastly, the salvation of the Lord, verse 27. He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Was it just happenstance that Simeon shows up at the temple the same time Jesus, Mary, and Joseph arrive? No, this was a divinely appointed meeting, wasn't it? And I just I, I just want you to take encouragement in that for just a second. In, in the very real difficulties of life, the struggles that we have to put food on the table sometimes, to make ends meet, 
to get from point A to point B. The Lord is sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating the events of this life and all of that. You lost your keys and you're delayed getting to work 10 minutes. And on your way, you pass that wreck that had you been on time, you might have been in, but we'll never know. The point being is, is that the Lord is sovereignly directing our steps. And he did this with Simeon and Jesus's parents. Simeon is not also a good example to us in life, but he's also a good example us, to us in death. Notice, notice these verses. He is at peace with God. What did we read in Romans 5.1? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. He says, you are letting. As he's praying to the Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon is at peace with God. Pulpit Commentary says, Simeon represents himself as under the image of a sentinel whom his master has placed on an elevated position and charged to look for the appearance of a star, and then to announce it to the world. He sees this long-desired star. He proclaims its rising and asks to be relieved of the post on the watchtower he has occupied so long. The Lord puts Simeon on the watchtower and says, Look out, I'm coming. Be on the alert. And Simeon says, Lord, you can take me off post now. Mission accomplished. I want you to see, though, that the peace that Simeon had is permanent with God. I, I read something this week, and you guys have, might, have, might have heard about this, but you ever heard of the temporary peace that was, that was seen in the miracle on the Western Front, 1914? One of my favorite movies, by the way, is 1917. Same war, three years later. But there was a truce call between the Germans and the English and the Times of London reported on the events of that Christmas truce. Curious, they stopped shooting and shelling each other, laid down their arms, took out their family pictures, and got out a soccer ball and, and laid down their arms that day. And there was a, from the diary of a German infantryman, quote, the English brought a soccer ball from the trenches and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, a celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. But what happened a day two later? Back at war. Back at war. See, there is no rest and peace to the wicked, the scripture says. The peace that Simeon had and the peace that you and I have, if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, is we have perpetual, eternal peace. There is no end to the peace that we have because of the Lord Jesus. The peace that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ is lasting and then I want you to see something else about Simeon. He rested in the promises of God. Notice he says, quote, according to your word, as he's praying to the father and thanking him for letting him hold and see this baby Jesus, this promised Messiah 
He rested in the promises of God. Well, what promises were they? Well, you can go to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman who was the bruise of serpent's head. You could go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You can go to Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there are many, many other verses, promises in the Old Testament that Simeon may have had fresh on his mind. Can you imagine? You know, one of the things that that he says is he had seen the salvation of the Lord. And we talked about being regenerate. One of the things that strikes me about Simeon is he doesn't say, Lord, I need to live for another 30 years until I see the fulfillment of the work of the Lord Jesus. What does he say? I can go. I'm at peace with the Father because of him. Because of the baby I'm holding, I'm at peace. Say, well, the Lord Jesus hadn't died yet. But here are the eyes of faith once again, seeing the finished work of the Lord Jesus applied to him. His eyes had seen the salvation of the Lord. The blood had been applied to Simeon's account, even though he was yet 30 plus years away from the realization of that atonement. He knew it was the salvation of the Lord. Notice that it's not just to the lost house of Israel. Psalm 98, 1 says this, So sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Simeon is under no illusion here that the gospel is not for the entire world. What did that mean? That was huge. Simeon knew that the gospel was meant for the Jew and the Gentile alike. Galatians 3.21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. By the way, Simeon knew this. Simeon was obeying the, the commandments of God. He was following the law, and yet he did not see his salvation in that. He saw his salvation in the baby. Verse 2 of, or excuse me, um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, for the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Listen to this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Simeon, by faith, rejoiced to see the promises of God through justification by faith fulfilled in Christ. So as we close this morning, just by way of application, as I think about how I should celebrate, remember the words of Bruce Leafblad. He says, true worship happens when we set our minds attention. And that's hard, isn't it? It is hard to sit here and listen to me yammer on for 45 minutes, Jesse nodding in agreement in the back. It's difficult. But true worship happens when we set our minds attention and our hearts affection on the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he has done. How, how or why should we celebrate? Well, we should celebrate because we rest in a sovereign God. We should. In the midst of a fallen world, the glory of God and the person and the work of Christ, as Steve Lawson says, the backdrop of the ugliness of sin, you have Satan, you have the curse, the fall of Adam and Eve, and the backdrop of all this messed upness is the black velvet that allows God to showcase the diamonds of his grace on full display to the world. You think about the, the awfulness of sin the fallenness and the brokenness of this world and why it's like this. It is the backdrop of which God puts the diamonds of his grace to glorify who he is and what he has done. He is sovereign. We should rest in that. We need that. Secondly, as we think about application here, because we work for and wait for a promise-keeping God, I am struck by the fact that Simeon, is doing what he knew he should be doing, even though there were 400 years of silence. Why? Because he saw with the eyes of faith. Time is irrelevant. The Lord Jesus said he is coming back in John 14, 1 through 3. He says this, let not your heart be troubled. Thank you for posting that passage this morning. I did not steal from that. I saw it after I had, had gotten this verse. But John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Did Jesus tell the truth? You say, well, we haven't heard for 2,000 years. Maybe he's forgot about us. I don't believe that. I fully believe he will keep his promise and he will come again and take us to be with him. In the meantime, what do we do? We keep working. We keep serving him. 
just like simple Simeon did. The last thing I would say as to why we should celebrate, because we worship a God who saves with his right arm. I love that passage in Psalm where it talks about him saving by the power of his right arm. For those who have been saved by the grace of God, you know to the very core of your being that you had nothing to do with that. And that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is all his doing. And he sent that little baby into that manger to remind us that it was all his doing. He rescues us from his wrath. He forgives our sins. He has done great things for his people. And that is eminently worth worshiping and praising him for. J.I. Packer says this, quote, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Christ came to rescue his people. That's worth celebrating. It's worth praising him for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done. We can only, Lord, imagine as we contemplate what Simeon was thinking and that overwhelming joy he had as he saw the realization of the promise. Everything that, that those Old Testament believers had looked forward to, many, many had died not seeing it. And here he was with the immense privilege of seeing your promise come to fruition. The bridge between the Old and the New Testament and the, and the simple man, Simeon. Lord, we're reminded that he was a man given to patiently wait. And so we have an example to emulate as we patiently wait for your soon return. We know that you will be back because you came the first time, according to your word, according to your promise. And you have promised that you will come again soon to collect your church, your bride. In the meantime, through the suffering and the tribulation in this life and in this world, we get to learn and to know you better. We ask, Lord, that as we meet and gather as your people, you will do just that. You will help us to know you better, that we will love you more and worship you in spirit and in truth, right, rightly as you deserve. Help us, Lord, as we gather with family over the next couple of days to glorify you, to point unbelieving family members and friends to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for our time together this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.